Welcome to episode two of Conversations from Here with me, Dana Ziegler. Today, I talk with the lovely and wise Jess Lakin, teacher, healer, sound artist, and photographer. We start our wide-ranging conversation with her Yorkshire beginnings in the north of England, formative years as a clinical psychologist for the National Health Service in the UK, moving to Amsterdam, and making the leap to Los Angeles. We talk about the mystery of gongs, the power of resonance, creating community remotely, and coming full circle. May her story inspire yours. Here's me and Jess. Hello there, my dear friend, Jess Lakin. It is really good to see you. I mean, it's been far too long. It's been far too long. It's so lovely to see you. And I am, as established, I am wearing my Union Jack t-shirt in honor of you because, you. <laughs> because you are not from around here. <laughs> you are, in fact, from Yorkshire. Is that right? I am. I'm a northern lass. A, north, a northerner. <laughs> northerner. <laughs> so yeah. you, you all, I, I remember we were talking about how in Game of Thrones, you know, you know nothing, Jon Snow. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, I am from the uh, Winterfell. Uh-huh, yes. Winterfell, that's, that's the accent. If you watch Game of Thrones, Winterfell is kind of the Yorkshire accent. So Jordy, right? Because isn't Jordy the same as Yorkshire or is it different? Or is it's that different. Okay. Jordi, the Geordie Newcastle, further north, and it's a different accent. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Because I know, and then of course there's Sean Bean from Sheffield. Yeah. So. So that's the Yorkshire accent. That's mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So you, you placed it. You placed <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, it's very very broad, and uh, there's like these interesting O's, like um, like. Uh, and that words get chopped off, like go around to pub, like it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's like, pub. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you also spent a lot of time in London, of course. So your accent is kind of, it, it's London inflected now. Yeah. And then I've spent time elsewhere in the world. So my, my family will say that I don't have a Yorkshire accent. Mm. Um, they will say, well, for a time they were, you know, just calling me very London, you know, like I turned into a Londoner. I think I still have a, a bit of a Northern accent. Mm -hmm. There's a little tiny bit. Now, how long were you in Bradford, because it was Bradford, right? The woolen mill, it was the textile industry hub. That's there. right. Uh, in the, I think the turn of the century was when it had its heyday. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of um, kind of big Victorian buildings and mill houses, mm -hmm. which it's still, some of them are still there. And it was a very wealthy place for a time, um, but kind of fell you know, it, it sort of didn't remain that way. <laughs> Not yeah. when I was born and grew up there, but it's a very, um, very nice kind of kind town, city, mm -hmm. city actually, um, in the north of England. And there's many of these cities across the north of England. They were all traditionally um, 
industrial cities mm -hmm. where the factories were based. Sheffield, Manchester, Liverpool. Um, but each city has its own character, personality, um, its own accent, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I really enjoy the north of England and kind of like traveling from place to place and mm -hmm. having these cities at hand. Mm -hmm. And they're very vibrant and very, um, very warm, like very, uh, there's a, there's a real uh, warmth to the people and the communities. Definitely. I know when I was traveling there, it's, it's much warmer in the north than it is in the south. Although I have to say, I did also fall in love with the West Country, Dorset, Devon and Cornwall. Yeah. But that and also the north and then into Scotland. I, I absolutely loved the people. So lovely, so warm and welcoming. And they're, they're a little like in the South, not to diss, you know, Southern England, yeah. but not to diss the home counties, but there's a, there's a reserve kind of mm -hmm. in the South, which is interesting because you'd almost think that the Northerners would be a little more, um, just given that it's cold and the climate is quite harsh that you'd almost think that that's where people would be a little more um, a little mm -hmm. more chilly, so to speak, but they're not, they're, they're extremely welcoming. And maybe it is the harshness of the climate that brings people together, you know, like, like fire and hearth, you know, gather round, you know, there may be some of that. Yeah. Um, and then, and it, and it was the strength in the communities as well. You know, the communities would be, uh, working in the same, um, you know, whether it was shipbuilding or right. um, yeah, Newcastle shipbuilding. Yeah, so there was a real Sheffield. There was a real strength in the community, which I think has kind of resided, has kind mm -hmm. of um, continued to this day. So but yeah, there's a big, there's a, there is a bit of a difference, or people even in the UK will notice the, the, uh, the difference between the north and the south. They'll say there's a divide, you know. Mm -hmm. Where, so where is the divide? If you're taking, uh, if you're taking the, uh, the, um, uh, what do they call it? It's the, um, uh, where the north begins. Well, the, 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 the train, it's the inter, the inter something rail that goes like when you, when you go to, I think it's either St. Pan uh, Houston or St. Pancras station from London to take the intercity. That's what it is. The intercity to go north. And yeah. you go ding 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 you know through all the cities up north, and then you get farther and farther. And it's I found it fascinating just like watching how the scenery changed. Yeah, and then like hitting Newcastle upon Tyne, and then you know like Hadrian's Wall and all that, and then phew, and then you're in Scotland, and then like the the flavor of the of the of the environment and the people change as people get on and off the train. I just found that fascinating. Yeah, it's a really fantastic journey to make I, i'm not even going to answer that question about where the divide is because i think oh. <laughs> everyone will have a different um, yeah, opinion I about that sure. but i think what what i really do love about the uk is um the 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 way the landscape changes mm -hmm. that diversity that diversity how each town changes and you see that on the train going north Mm -hmm. and um, you end up in Scotland and just these beautiful skies and mountains and mm -hmm. it's uh, truly kind of in really fun to kind of make that journey yeah. just for the sole purpose of 
making the journey and observing. Yeah. Well, and I've been in Edinburgh twice, and I have to say that the coldest I've ever been was November in Edinburgh and being on <laughs> Princess Street and being on this granite boulevard, these really, you know, like tall stone facades of the buildings and the wind is whipping, you know, that rain is blowing sideways. And it was just like, oh my God, <laughs> how do people survive here, yeah. you know? November, yep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And that I think um, that's kind of, you know, the, that sort of harshness of the weather or that even the unpredictability of the weather. Right. You know, every day you cannot, you cannot predict the weather in the UK. Right. Every it's day. It's a maritime climate, so it's always variable. Very variable. Even, you know, one moment to the next, the clouds will come, the rain will mm -hmm. fall. I don't know, there's something... I think that's where the pub culture kind of like sprang from. I, I had a, I spent a holiday in on the Isle, the Western Isles of Scotland, mm -hmm. the Isle of Mull. Uh -huh. And uh, it was just, it's just incredibly beautiful. I think probably one of the most beautiful places I've uh, been graced to visit in my life. And um we were camping and it was like beautiful for quite a few days and then the rain came and it rained and it rained <laughs> i think for about three days wow. and we were in this tent and we, we <laughs> kind of like explored went to to a tiny hamlet just a very small kind of collection of houses and we'd heard there was a pub somewhere and we were knocking on doors and eventually we were let into this place and it was a pub. It looked like somebody's ordinary house and there was a dartboard and a fire and, you know, some drinks and tables and people all gathered together. And I thought, oh, this is where, you know, the pub came from. It's really about giving people shelter from the weather. It's the public the house. It's the, the, it's the place yeah. to bring everyone that everyone can go to and and they even have um i know in ireland they have in their pubs they have what they call snugs which they probably also have um in in england and scotland and wales as well is that there are these little they're almost like little rooms and they're in the pubs mm -hmm. and it's where traditionally women and children could be and they could have you know food or whatnot or families mm -hmm separate from the whole bar scene so it was kind of a way to a snug was a way to kind of tuck your family away and mm -hmm. have a, a little private space mm -hmm. yeah yeah so it's this it's, so the pub is this a kind of like very hearty place where people can just be and i think that's probably where they came you know that idea of sheltering from the the wild weather that can happen over there and, and so you were in, you, you, so you grew up in Yorkshire, you grew up in Bradford, and then yeah. how old were you when you, when you left? Did you go straight to London or what was your? I, I uh, left when I was about 18 and uh, went off to university. Um, and I actually went to university in Yorkshire, but a different part of Yorkshire. It could have been kind of like the other side of the world, actually. It was a very different town. I went to Hull University um, and had the most amazing time there. Um, 
but that's when I left. And I, I guess, you know, I didn't really go home again after that. Mm-hmm. That was really my um, move away from my parent, my parents' home. And did you finish up your schooling at Hull or did you, it, did you move on to? to I did. I finished up my school. I uh, was, there was a, I was very lucky to be offered um, a very unusual course at Hull University, which took me straight into the doctorate. So I did a Bachelor of Science in Psychology and then um, went straight into the the clinical psychology doctorate. Uh, And that was the only course in the country that provided that at that time. Wow. And um, so I actually was there for six years um, and kind of completed all my, all my sort of formal schooling there. And, and then did, afterwards I went to London. And did you know when you were a youngster growing up, I mean, was, was psychology kind of where, where your mind was at in terms of what you wanted to do? Or was that something that was formed when you went to, when you got to university and you looked at your options? I, um, in the, in the UK, the, the schooling system is a bit different. We, um, go through, uh, we do something called GCSE exams when we're 16. Mm -hmm. And from that point, you choose three options, three subjects, which takes you into your A levels, which is kind of like a higher level, but you, but it, but you kind of have to make a choice quite early what you're interested in. Because those three A-levels determine what you can do at the university level. I see. So I did um, sciences and maths, Mm -hmm. thinking I wanted to be a doctor, Mm -hmm. as in a medical doctor. And uh, I was kind of on that track. And I happened to watch a documentary series following some young new doctors or student doctors. And I just decided... (laughs) That's a little much. That wasn't for me. Yeah. Yeah, It was really interesting. Um, So I was kind of always interested in working with people and, and psychology kind of sprang up as an option after, after that, you know, Um, I really had no idea what psychology really was or uh, (laughs) what even being a clinical psychologist would, would involve. Um, But I, applied for psychology at various universities and I took I chose that university because of the option to do the doctorate mm-hmm. at, at an early age mm-hmm. um, it seemed like a good opportunity so so kind of that's how I ended up there you know it's interesting that you have when you're 16 and you you choose you have those options the fact that you have three options I think is really wise because what 16 year old knows what they want to do, but at least you probably have a really keen idea of the areas of interest. So I think that's smart that they give you three that you can choose three and then your A levels, then that further kind of weeds things out. So as you get older, then you're by the time you get to university, you're really keen on, okay, this is the path that I'm going to take. So that makes more sense, actually, than the American university system, which is most people, by the time they reach university, have no idea what they're yeah. majoring. They yeah. spend the first couple of years kind of figuring it out, you know? 
Yeah, I think one of the problems for the UK is that sometimes people don't really just don't know at that age. So they're already kind of narrowing their options. And yeah. then, you know, so I think it's kind of swings and roundabouts. Um, um, it, it, it does, it's kind of the experience of those three subjects. Mm -hmm. doing it and the, the focus of that, that was quite fun. Mm -hmm. um, and it was always just such a fun time to be 17, 18 in those two years. It kind of separate from the rest of school with more independence and more freedom. So it was always a fun time. Um, and, but I think for a lot of people, they have the same issue, you know, not really knowing what they want to do and, you know, sometimes changing track completely even after university. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you went after you graduated. Did you go right? Because I know you worked for the NHS, right? For a time. Yeah. Did you go right into that, or was there an interim period for your clinical psychology? Yeah. So during my uh, final three years um, at Hull University, I um, uh, was actually working already for the NHS. So part of our training was to be doing um, three days a week working in, in a clinical setting um, and being paid by the NHS. Wow. That, that kind of really helps, you know, to be yeah. a student. And, um, and then it was a, just a very seamless step from there to go into, into, into a full-time job. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of went straight into uh, working in children's services um, and I worked in London originally, um, and then I took a break when I was about 25. I just, uh, I'd always wanted to travel. So I took a year off and went traveling around Central and South America. And then I came back and went straight back into, um, working in children's services, um, for, for quite a few years, I'd say maybe around a decade, um, doing that work in different services, um, different towns, but really getting a very broad kind of picture of uh, that work at that time uh, in different locations. And did you, did you start to feel like you were, I mean, you, you did this for quite a long time and was, were you starting to, I think you mentioned before in our previous conversations about how you started to get restless, like you kind of, mm, you were starting to feel like you wanted to do something different. When did that start? Yeah, I, so all the jobs that I, my kind of pathway through being a psychologist, I, I always ended up I felt being on the fringes of psychology. Um, I was really, I loved working in the community. I loved um, these kind of projects, which were relatively innovative, uh, either working, at, going to see people in their homes or having people come to community centers. So I felt more at home in those settings rather than in, um, uh, what we would call multidisciplinary team settings in hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, and so I kind of like had this really quite a rich experience. Um, and that it was around about the time of 
about 2010, 2011, after the financial crash, mm-hmm. started to have an effect on funding to some of the projects I was working in. And the, um, these preventative, it's called preventative care, tier two preventative care, um, they started to move funding out of those projects. Mm. And uh, so that was kind of my, the point where I started to kind of wonder about my future um, in psychology. Because um, we were working with kids who had, weren't, these were generally kids who had had domestic issues or issues with the parents or within the family. Yes. Like that. And did you work at all with any kind of child protective services kind of situation? Yeah. I mean, that was like a, a very, always a, an element of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked across uh, the education. So I would always have kind of an input into schools, into the child protection services, um, into the whole kind of um, all the people who would be involved in children. We were, we, we had these connections. My role was lovely in many ways because I had a therapeutic role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was kind of meeting families and offering support um, from a therapeutic perspective. Mm-hmm. But sometimes child protection issues would crop up. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that needed, you felt needed and useful on the, on the ground in a really practical way, helping these people navigate. Yeah. 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 And the, and this was kind of um, stepping into, you know, very intimate, very personal situations for people. Um, And just being there as a, an extra pair of eyes in a way, somebody to, um, bring in, I guess, that energetic support to a family, but it wasn't always easy. You know, there, there was often a lot of stress um, for these families at that time, lots of concern. So people used to ask me, is it depressing, my work? Was my work depressing? And actually it never was, even, even though people had challenges and sometimes very severe challenges, what I always enjoyed was the resilience and the humor and the, I don't know, there was always this social, this human connection mm-hmm. that I could find, um, which would make my job really very joyful um, on a day-to-day basis. Occasionally there was challenge, occasionally um, uh, there was stress associated with the individual cases, but it was generally a very joyful, joyful job. I imagine for a lot of people that there would probably be a high burnout rate because they wouldn't have been able to do as you did to find that sort of source of light within the the work itself, you know, with the people and the humor and the resilience and all of those positive qualities. But you did get out of it at at a, a certain point. I did. I think, uh, you know, I, I think um, the, I, ha- I really commend the people who, who do that work and continue to do that work. And I think it, even people who work in child protection, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to hold that space year after year, 
Um, I think I knew in myself I had a limit. Um, I, or perhaps I um, was really kind of desiring to explore something more holistic. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the, it was mainly my reason for kind of leaving at that moment was more it was kind of very opportunistic because an opportunity came at that moment where the services that I was interested in working in were beginning to to close to shrink mm -hmm. so it was kind of like that I guess the universe goes okay well there's an opportunity are you going to take it now and had that opportunity come a year before I probably wouldn't have taken it so it was like a door was closing and then it, and then you got popped through a window but then yeah. on to the next onto the next thing and maybe yeah. maybe you wouldn't have popped through that window had the door not been closing you know because it would have been so. a safe place to stay but instead you chose to to take the leap yeah i mean what that was <laughs> yeah it was so I, I think the really the the nhs or the national health service in the uk is a wonderful training ground I mean, I look back and I look at just how much experience I had, the, the wonderful people that I worked with, the training, the, the diversity of the communities I worked across. Um, and also, it, it was very much I was working under the umbrella of um, being part of the National Health Service and under the umbrella of being a psychologist. Um, I think it was very comfortable and had those doors, that door kind of not been closing and, you know, I, I may not have taken that opportunity that came when it did. So what was the opportunity that came? What was the window that opened? The opportunity was uh, my uh, husband or my partner at the time was offered a, a job in Amsterdam. Oh, that's right. So the opportunity was that kind of leap to move abroad, which at the time felt like a huge, a huge uh, decision to make because uh, we had young children as well. Mm -hmm. So um, it was like really kind of, that was the first leap. Not very, actually not so far from the UK, the Netherlands, mm -hmm. but still kind of culturally. Culturally a big leap. It was a very big leap. It's Europe, yeah. it's a different animal. Yeah. And then did you love your, you mentioned that you really loved your time in Amsterdam. Um, I, it was a, I think um, it was the beginning of my journey um, of kind of expansion, but the, there was a lot of letting go and a lot about finding my own feet so so to suddenly be without that umbrella of my career mm -hmm. and that security of my own work to be in a place where the light where the language was um you know very difficult for me um it was a huge it felt like i'd kind of um i felt like i'd committed career suicide actually at that moment mm -hmm. and I felt very lost for a time yeah 
And and you've got Jack and Daisy who were really young at the time. Were they pre like before? Were they preschool years when you were there, or were they were they starting to go to school at that point in Amsterdam? My son was um, had he started school in Amsterdam, yeah, and my daughter was very little. She was about eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So um, actually, the school was a, a saving grace. We. Um, uh, found an international school and I immediately found myself in amongst a group of um, other parents and formed very close friendships through through being at that school. So it was a kind of, um, it was being able to kind of observe and be in another culture and then have a little kind of nu- nucleus of um, feeling at home there. And I think Amsterdam is a really wonderful city. I, um, I can imagine it's a really fun city to be in when you're young. And <laughs> it was a different experience to be a young, to be a mum there with young children. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I think to, kind of at that point in my life to move from a place where I kind of understood how everything worked into a place where I didn't understand how anything worked. Although people were very, very kind and helpful. It was just a, it was just a big, um, it was a big transition. Mm -hmm. And then of course, Amsterdam is a place where there are all kinds of things that are legal there that aren't legal in (laughs) other places. And so it kind of like, it's a little bit of a head spin, I imagine, sort of like, wow you know it's a very liberal city it's very you know and yeah that that has its its complications too you know as much as it can be great in some ways in other ways you know maybe not so much and you know so but it is definitely a a, a cultural shift for sure and yeah the um i always that's what i love travel and i love to kind of have those daily adventures of like oh this these things have you know this is a different way of living we lived really in the center of amsterdam for the Uh first year and we um lived down an alley we could get to our tram stop through an alleyway which had some red lights Uh uh, (laughs) (laughs) i would have my kids I would have my kids, my daughter in my in the in the pushchair and my son and you know, we they'd wave and shout yeah, and talk to us, Hey, how are you doing? you know and it was uh it was just yeah, it, there was nothing to it. Nothing yeah. to it. You know, it was just part of the life. Everybody um, has to make a living <laughs> in whatever way they can. Yeah, exactly. And then how long so then how long were you in Amsterdam and when did, where did you go after that? So we were there for three years and um, I think one of the biggest um, really enriching parts of being in Amsterdam was living on bikes Mm -hmm. and living life on a bike. Mm -hmm. And then we were preparing to go back to the UK and then another opportunity at that moment (laughs) kind of fell out of the sky. office, And then suddenly Jess is offered another window. <laughs> uh, so, and the opportunity was a job for my, my husband mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Okay, wow. So again, another enormous, ginormous cultural shift to go from Amsterdam 
tiny little cozy Dutch mm -hmm. nest to then the den of iniquity that is 10 million souls <laughs> up here on the West Coast. This, this one felt like such a leap of faith. I mean, I'd never even been to Los Angeles. I'd been to New York once. Mm -hmm. um, and this for this opportunity to suddenly literally just land, come out of, come from the heavens, so to speak. Um, it was a, it was a big decision. We were lots of, shall we, shan't we, shall we, shan't we? Mm -hmm. And then we ended up, you know, I think what happened is it was just a feeling of, okay, why not? You know, let's see, why not take this opportunity? Because I, for, for people from Europe and from the UK, it's, for, it's really quite unusual to have this opportunity to work, mm -hmm. uh, live in the States. Yeah. And so, you know, we came to have a visit and we were still like on the fence. Do we go? Yeah. And then there's something well, the that- The weather's nice. The weather's <laughs> definitely nice. Yeah. Something that just said, go for it. And yeah. so having, um, having already done the move, I understood what was involved. Mm -hmm. So I made a commitment to myself or made a couple of commitments to myself. To myself. I, the first was that if I was going to do this, I was not going to doubt. I was just going to do it and just be really present to the experience. Um, and I think the other commitment I made to myself was that if, if I was going to do it, I was going to say yes to things, whatever opportunities came, I would just say yes, because at that point in my, and I was also very clear that I was going because I felt there was something for all of the family, including myself in addition to my husband, the, the uh, job for my husband. So it was like a really committed and positive decision when I came here. What's interesting is when you make that commitment, it's, I have a friend who, who mentioned that uh, when you are at first maybe on the fence about something because you're not sure of the hows, you know what, but you're not sure of the hows, when yeah. you make the commitment to that what, somehow the hows start to reveal themselves and, yeah. and they, it, it happens. Like you start, you think, wow, now I know how to do X, Y, Z. Wow, things are unfolding. Wow, here's an opportunity there. Um, and, yeah. and just making that choice, making that commitment and being solid in that commitment and being open and being able to say, like you said, yes to everything, whatever that meant. And it takes you to unimagined yeah. places. Yeah. And so um, I, you know, we, there was something about that choice and that commitment. Um, and we, uh, we gave up our apartment in Amsterdam. We left Amsterdam on the train to Paris with four giant suitcases. <laughs> we had no visa. <laughs> we had no visa at that point to come to America. We, we had no idea when it was going to come. We were essentially kind of like drifting between um, our family's houses. And, um, you know, it was like 
we were just sort of, we had no house to come to here. We didn't even know which area we were going to come to, mm. but somehow things fell in place. You know, I think the, how we, we found a potential house to rent. We, um, we, the visa came, then we just booked the tickets and then we were here. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh my goodness, how did that Life happen? begins. Yeah. And so, um, and so like I found myself here and, um, you know, it was essentially a, an op- I knew it was an opportunity to expand and, and learn, I think. And I had that mantra of saying yes, which I did to everything, you know, when somebody in, I met somebody and they'd say, do you want to go to a yoga class? Mm-hmm. I would go, yes. <laughs> Why, yes, I do. <laughs> and actually that's kind of what sort of, that is really what directed me into the things that I'm doing now. It mm-hmm. came from there. Yeah. And then for the, cause you and I met of course in the yoga teacher training mm-hmm. and then that was a bit, and then that was a, you know, huge for, for our respective lives. That was a big, you know, choice to do. And it kind of sent us off in different directions. And, um, when I think of you, I think of, I think of sound. Mm-hmm. I also think of photography too, because that's mm-hmm. something else that you're brilliant at. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy looking at your posts of, um, and your, especially lately your Joshua Tree stuff that you were doing. Um, but um, d- how did you get connected with the gong? Because that is something that I always associate with you and the sound baths. Okay. okay. Um... Well, maybe, maybe if I just retrace and sort of go back into the photography, because that was kind of, when I got here, I had no, I quickly realized it was very difficult for me to continue working as a psychologist mm-hmm. um, because of licensing, et cetera. And uh, I decided, decided I would rather explore things which I was passionate about. Um, and I'd always had this desire, this kind of creative desire to try my hand at photography. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did when I arrived in LA, I bought a camera and I just took to the streets. And that was how I learned about, that's how I discovered different parts of LA through just going to these different places and taking photos and meeting people and doing voluntary work for people. And it really connected me to lots of different experiences, um, which was really fun. And then somewhere along that journey, somebody invited me to a yoga class. And it was, uh, it was quite funny, actually, because I, I think uh, LA has a, has a rep- um, reputation for wellness mm-hmm. and yoga and even my friends had said we'll give you a month Jess before before We're you waving crystals around yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and it, well, it wasn't too long that I was you know buying my yoga pants and yeah. the yoga studios got your but, mat and you've got your got your bowls and you've got yeah your yeah, yeah yeah so they they were just and your mom just really laugh, you know, they, they find it very funny that I am doing what I'm doing right now. Um, uh, but it was through being in the yoga 
and literally just laying down in Shabasna for the relaxation and somebody playing the gong. And I was immediately blown away. Yeah. The experience. For sure. And I think that's probably one of the, one of the reasons that I was drawn into the teacher training, which where we met, which was a really fantastic training. Um, and after qualifying in the teacher training, I um, just bought a gong. I just decided I was going to buy one. Um, I think a friend of mine had bought one and I was inspired by her. So I, so I bought one. And then as these things often happen, uh, the gong comes first and then a, I've, I found a teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, that was kind of my journey into the sound. Um, uh, and I continue to sort of work. It was a gong training for about three and a half years. I was involved in that training. Um, and it really, it was a training about the self, you know, um, and self mastery learn. via gong. Yeah. Cause it's like very much, you have to learn how to center yourself and be in your own heart space in order to play um, the gong. So that was, that was my journey to sound. And I just continue to deepen and have a real, uh, real love of the instrument. And now I offer sound baths and do private sessions for people. One of the things that I, I love in some of the videos that I've seen of you when you're on the beach and you're playing yeah. the, gong, the way that you, the way that you kind of allow, you sort of disperse the sound in different ways with your hands. I always found that so mm -hmm. interesting because it changes the, the quality of the, the, um, and you know, one of the things I have a friend who um, actually who's an actor, but also is a, is an artisan and um, started making gongs. And he told me that as you play a gong and as it ages, you know, as it matures and as you're playing it, the, the structure of the metal becomes a crystalline structure. The molecules, the atoms, actually the molecules will say, align themselves in a particular way. I find this fascinating because we tend to think of metal as a solid, but mm -hmm. it's not. <laughs> now nothing is really a solid, but the, how they line up in a crystalline structure. And so that's why the sound, a gong that has been played through the years and years and years and years and decades has a quality to it that a younger gong doesn't have. It's like a gong has to, has to, has to age and grow and and mature in itself to then like become especially resonant so mm -hmm. that gong that you have that you that you got three or so years ago mm -hmm. is is going to sound even richer and more wonderful as you as it travels with you through through life isn't that a wild thing yeah and the you know these these are, it feels to me that these well each i love musical instruments and i you know i have a guitar as well since i've had since i was 14 and you know it's one of the most precious things that i own um and i feel the same about the gongs um they 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 are their own presence, you know, and, uh, and they, 
through playing and through, I kind of feel with the gongs, it's through the work that they do or the mm -hmm. offerings that they, they make that they are kind of imbued with something. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's also about getting to know them as well. And there's this kind of reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'd notice it because there have been some studios where I've played the gongs at the studios not my own gong and I feel very, I feel that it's a different experience for me. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's really, it's really interesting to hear that about. And, and these instruments kind of, I look at it, they, they will last for years and years and years. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I remember when I used to teach at Golden Soul in Los Feliz when when it was open, the studio, the wonderful little jewel box of the studio, and I used to love their Chiron gong that they mm -hmm. had, and and um, and it just had this this whole. Um, it's it's kind of like it tells you how to play it in a certain way, like yeah. you were saying when you play different different gongs or different instruments, they kind of have, there's a feel, there's a difference in feel, and it seems to kind of want different things or express itself. And it, it is almost like it's an entity. It's a very strange thing. And I wonder if maybe part of that has to do with the fact that a gong is, um, it, it takes a long time to make one. It is a, it's a, um, a process. It's a, and the artisan who is creating it, it's kind of imbued with them also. And there's, Kind of, I don't know, it's almost like it's a living thing in a certain way. And same with, you know, a, a guitar or a cello or anything made of wood that also, again, the, the molecules will align themselves in a certain way, like violins, like a Stradivarius that hasn't been played for 200 years is going to be creaky. But then once it starts getting played again, it's kind of resurrected in its sound and it and aligns itself. I just find that yeah. really fascinating. And, you know, I think we're talking the whole, we're talking about resonance and we're talking about this world, this kind of like physical reality that we can touch and feel and smell and experience with our senses really is, uh, comes from, from an energetic space. And I think the thing about uh, sound for me is that it's that immediate, you can hear though how energy moves like even to to move the sound with the, with the hand as i do when i play the gongs um it's like that ability to hear it to truly experience this reality and the energetic in an energetic way mm -hmm. um yeah the 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 gongs are um even to bring a gong into your home changes the energy mm -hmm. <laughs> it brings in a new energy so it's like I, if you're sensitive energetically um and i believe it's the same with any instrument or or anything you know everything yeah, we've got instruments, instruments everywhere here oh, lovely yeah. brad's little music studio in the uh, in the living room yeah you see a couple a few guitars behind me too yeah but there's something really, and, and it's also a, it's a vehicle for artistic expression, for creative expression, and it's also its own thing. It's, it's an, interesting, yeah. an interesting thing. I'm, I am never, I am never ever bored in life because there's so much, there's so much fascinating stuff out there, you know, 
and especially things that that last through time like a gong or like a guitar like this guitar that you've had since you were 14 mm -hmm. years old mm -hmm. you know and you have a bond with it and mm -hmm. you would know with your eyes closed if somebody handed you a guitar you would know if it was yours or not oh yeah yeah and you can actually we we were threatened by fire a couple of times mm -hmm. yeah. yeah it's been an interesting year yeah oh boy can we reboot? we control alt delete and reboot and start yeah. and not have this birthday count <laughs> uh but to to have a fire like on the hillside behind your house sure. and then to basically run around your home kind of going right you have to you have to shout to me if you want to come like i was literally kind of calling to the belongings in our house like who's coming because you right. know we have to pack the car right now and really the the guitar the gongs they were in my they were my priority Mm -hmm. and uh you know some photos and things mm -hmm. but yeah th that these instruments are irreplaceable i think and the other thing that you're doing too is you're still are you still having your well they're virtual now of course by by virtue of everything you know being yeah. doing as we're doing now we're doing a zoom call um with your women's groups you're still doing those like a couple times a week aren't you yeah, I, you know, like, it's so interesting with um, COVID, um, the, this kind of what feels like this constriction on life that there was, you know, when everything went into lockdown, what kind of can emerge from that? And now that we've been in this situation for a few months, and I can sort of look back and just look back in a balanced way i see there's been an incredible amount of expansion for me and my work through this forced situation of lockdown um, because it, it it kind of pushed me into the virtual world mm -hmm. and putting my offerings online and the kind of result of that is really being able to kind of offer to a much wider distance you know i i kind of have been having people coming into my sessions from the uk or canada or boston mm -hmm. um arizona you know and so there's been this really wonderful expansion and the the women's circles i run is uh, an opportunity for women to kind of hop online for an hour a week um build new friendships with people from other parts of the world mm -hmm. and kind of like really connect. There's something very real about even being on Zoom, like to feel into, into other people's energies. It feels like you're in the same room. Yeah, and the reach is remarkable because um, if yeah. you were doing a live women's circle here in LA, you'd have your you know, your, your, your 10 or so people and they would be here in the room, but they would be local people. Yeah. Whereas this way you're, you're branching out. I mean, I wonder if maybe after all this lockdown stuff is over, maybe you'll have both. Maybe would you, would you consider doing that? Having the, you have your broad international reach with your, your zoom crowd and then also having your local, your yeah. local gatherings. 
Yeah, actually, I've started working back in a studio, um, a meditation studio, and that's what I'm doing. I do a virtual class followed by an in-person class. Mm-hmm. And I have to say it's lovely to be able to be in the same room as people also. Um, but to definitely have both, you know, like I think for so many, for everybody, whatever business they've done, it's this um, situation has shown that we can still link with each other, even if we're in fact, you know, far separated geographically. So it's been learning for me. Yeah. And I think that there's a little bit of a, I mean, for me, there was a little bit of resistance about doing any online stuff, you know, like, I don't want to look at a screen, but actually it's very effective and that, and it has become the, the vehicle for the launch of my little conversations from here podcast because I thought okay what can I do what can I create and I think you know if I were living a normal life and out there working in the world and whatnot would I have had the time or the energy or necessarily the motivation to be doing something creative that really honestly I've always wanted to do Mm -hmm. um and this has afforded a um a, a, a a space of time and, um, and, and as I said, a vehicle for doing this kind of thing. And um, because I was getting hung up in the details, I was getting hung up in the hows in terms of the technical aspects and like, well, I don't have, I don't have scissor booms for my mics and I don't have this and that and I, don't, I need to learn this, and learn the software or whatever. And I thought, just do a freaking Zoom call because that's actually what all the professional podcasters are doing now because it's kind of it's where we're all so it's a level playing field so i thought well why not just do it so i think i started this i have no doubt that really i started this sooner than i would have because i would have gotten caught up in analysis paralysis and worrying about the hows and oh i don't know enough that would be my thing that i'd be telling myself i don't know enough i've never done this before you know and and so now i'm finding oh okay, you just do it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's something to put out there. And, you know, it it will become better and more professional and whatnot as we go. But we but that's no reason not to start. So it's been very liberating. Yeah, I think this is one of my personal learnings. Um, You know, so many traditions talk about really all there is is now. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, there ain't nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really, it's difficult to understand that because we spend either so much time thinking into the future, if, when, when I have this, when I'm, bit, when I'm more trained, when I have the technology, um, or sometimes in the past. But really, it's like, okay, you know, what can I do actually now in the now? And to have that we all have to have this technology of the zoom and to kind of go, okay, I'm going to give it a go and showing up and doing it. Um, there's so many ways that I've kind of taken that same attitude and with even like the women's circle or even, um, some of the offerings that I've made or even the photography that I did mm-hmm. because at one stage I was, um, with a friend of mine, um, who's a music journalist, she was asking me to go take photos at the Troubadour of different mm-hmm. bands. And I was like, mm, 
I'm not sure I'm good enough, but to just say yes to it yeah. and to do it in the now. I remember and, when you did that. And how like, much, I, don't, I don't know if I'm professional enough. And then you went and, did it and had a great time and got some great shots, you know, because you, you just allowed yourself to just, you know, be here now and take those pictures and not have judgment, not, not be editing yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, in a way, this situation of COVID has presented that question to people like, what can we do right now? You know, like, um, and to find that ability of, ex to find that expansion into whatever inspires us, even during, during the, the limitations which are placed around us. Right, because I think there's a tendency for people to, so, to say or to think, oh, if only I could get to this point, or if only I had this experience, or if I only had this training. And so I think in a weird way, this, this lockdown, this limitation on movement has afforded, like you said, people a structure within to create uh, it almost it's almost like when you learn the grammar then you can then you can really use the language or when you learn the notes you know you then you can really just let the music flow but you have to within the strictures of structure um these perceived limitations you start finding freedom in a certain way yes because when you do, if you are not out there in the world, you know, doing a job or whatnot, like me right now, I am I'm in the midst of my search still. And, but I have had this time to be able to do something with it. And, um, and it has been a gift, I have yeah. to say, um, yeah. very much so. So it's like, why not just make the best of it, you know, to get the, get the best out of it that we possibly can. So we don't really have a choice, you know, at the moment. Yeah. So that's finding freedom within, because at first it feels like bondage, but then yes. you find your freedom within that. Yeah. And it's even just touching. I think the power comes from touching into that sense of liberation, even to be able to feel that, even if it's just a glimpse, I don't know. It has the, 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 it, it has such a profound um, effect on me to just shift my whole my whole men mental outlook, my mood, my positivity. Um, but it's not to say I, I don't have my frustrations and I haven't had my frustrations. Yeah, oh, we all do for sure. And that's yeah. natural. And, and I think it's good because it is kind of a, okay, come on, let's go. You know, there, there's a restlessness there. And I think that's healthy. I think, you know, there, because at some point this will be over. Um, but it's interesting because I feel like, you know, but back when we first started talking and you were talking about how, when you were with the NHS and doing your clinical psychology work, how you would wanted to do some things that were more holistic and whatnot, and you weren't really able to kind of find a way to do that. Do you feel that you've really kind of come full circle and now you're expressing yourself in your, in your therapeutic way and your creative way that you really have been wanting to do all along? You know, the, 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 even the, the leaps that I made away from psychology in some ways felt like real constrictions for me because I wasn't able to use my 
my professional qualification and work mm -hmm. that was very different very uh created a lot of frustration and anxiety for me but I just kept moving towards what inspired me so it started with the photography it became yoga it moved into meditation and sound and um, energy healing and then suddenly I find that I'm uh, there were, I think maybe two years ago or so I found myself kind of going oh wow somehow I have um, added all these other um, beautiful pearls to my basket of um, skills. And it just felt like this holistic balance, like um, to have had the psychology and that, um, you know, which comes from sort of Western thought, science, mm -hmm. to have had that grounding in science and research and kind of to be able to use that clinically but then to bring in the energetic aspects to bring in the this ancient wisdom from um, the indigenous cultures of the world or even from the far east um, it just felt like a beautiful thing to suddenly see um, these two avenues all these avenues of wisdom coming together um, and um, feeling so freeing to me as a practitioner to be able to um, meet with people and to share tools or strategies which would intuitively come that knowing it, it could be helpful to them. So um, I just feel like it's, much, it's a much broader, I have a much broader offering now. And I used to feel this as a psychologist. Sometimes I used to think, gosh, I talk an awful lot. Or we, <laughs> we spend an awful lot of time talking, but I just want to do something right, with people that I work with. Um, and now I find the work that I've done with the body, the yoga, the breath, it, it is a powerful portal. Sometimes we hardly need any words, really, for people to to shift in to have an insight or an awareness or an experience a healing experience it doesn't necessarily come through words it may just come through the movement or it may come through the moment of stillness that we share so um i kind of have come full circle i now when i work with people we do talk but um we we bring in the movement and the breath and so there's more doing there's more experiencing in that space mm -hmm. you know what i think we have come full circle we have in this yeah. time together in this hour and 18 minutes we have come full circle in this and what a beautiful way what a beautiful way to end it to, to tie a bow around it it really yeah it does Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. I mean, this was a fantastic event. And see, you were nervous and everything. There's no reason. <laughs> Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Dana. With love. Ah, that was so wonderful. Such a pleasure and a privilege to speak with my dear friend, Jess Lakin. 
So happy to be able to bring these brilliant souls to you. Some of my favorite people in the world. Such a treat to be able to share them. And I hope that with these talks, that maybe perhaps as much as they are interesting or entertaining, I, I hope that they also maybe inspire you a little bit. Maybe there's a creative project you've been craving to get going. Maybe you've just been in the doldrums a little bit. That's the purpose of the show to provide inspiration and uh, maybe lift the spirits a little bit. I hope you have a beautiful week and next week we're going to have yet another bright light. Very excited to bring you someone else in my orbit. Great pleasure. Have a beautiful week until then and I'll see you on the other side. Bye-bye.